sorry for the delay, everyone. Uh, had technical difficulties, so I appreciate your patience. Today I'll be giving a, a talk on driving sustainable innovation in supply chains through design thinking. And my name is Craig Norman. I work for Brambles. Uh, you may have uh, heard of CHEP uh, if you handle pallets of any sort. Um, we are the world's largest pallet pooler, which means we use a use and reuse circular business model globally to uh, share our assets. So when we're talking design thinking, um, it's really all about the process you're going through to take an idea, validate it, and come up with the optimal solution at the end. So when you think about it, there's really five things you're doing. First step is empathizing. What does that mean? It really means that you're taking time with your customer to really dig deep into what their pain points are or their perceived pain points are. Sometimes it's actually said, they tell you to your face what their, their problem is. Sometimes you have to observe it and witness what, what's going on and they don't actually mention it. You take that and it gives you context to basically define the problem. This is your problem statement. This is what's going on. This is how I, I think I'm gonna solve it. From there, you move to ideate. And, and the key here is it's, it's not just brainstorming. It's actually brainstorming with focus. You have to keep your mind that you've uncovered some pain earlier on in the process, and now you're ideating. You're coming up with multiple options, solutions that might work. From there, you move on to prototyping. You design something. What does that, that idea look like on paper? CAD design for a, a pallet, for example. Does it work? Will it work to do what you think it should do to solve that problem? And then that last step, which is pretty obvious at this point, is to test it. Key here is it doesn't have to be a real world test. You know, for a pallet, for those of us in, in our industry, you know, it's, it's very common for us to go out and actually physically build a mock-up pallet, wood, plastic, 3D print it, whatever, and then try and figure out if that, that works the way we want to. But you can equally do that using software. If you're building uh, a warehousing system and you're trying to optimize it, you're probably not building a real world warehousing system. You're probably doing that with software first to tweak it until you get there. The other key here is you see these little arrows it's important to remember that this is not a one-way trip. It's not a linear story. It's actually iterative. So at each stage, you can go back and improve it. You can go back and, and validate it. Did I get this right? So when you're defining the problem, you can go back to your customer and say, is this what you're saying to me? Is this the pain point you've described to me? And, and yes or no. And if they tell you no, then you dig deeper. Testing, obviously, pretty self-explanatory. You're testing something, you're validating each time. So one of the big differences between design thinking and the traditional approach of thinking is, is going back to it's, it's test and learn. Conventional thinking is more learn and test. So in conventional, you start with marketing research, you, you look at what's out there in the market, and then you build your, your concept around that. You design it, 
you build it, you prototype it, and maybe at the very end, you think you've got that solution just right, then you take it to your customer and you ask them, hey, what do you think? Well, that's great, except that you may get all the way to the end and find out it's not exactly what, what's gonna solve their problem. So design thinking, on the other hand, your test and your prototyping is driving the learning instead of the learning driving your test. So you flip it on its head. So as, as you're iterating through this process, you design a process earlier and then you test it. If it's not right, you can pivot away, you can toss it in the garbage if it's completely off base, or maybe you find a kernel of truth, something that's working, and then you take that and improve on it again. And it gets slowly better, slowly better, slowly better until you get that optimal result. It's not about failing, it's actually about failing and learning and improving. So you'll hear fail fast, that's really only part of it. It's fail, then learn, then improve. The steps are also very important. And when you leave things out, you can really create confusion, anxiety, it can be slow. So in a traditional sense, this middle one is, is really that linear process. It can be really slow. Or you can come up with something that's low, lower in value than you expect. You come up with what you think is a great idea and it may solve part of the problem, but maybe your customer says, well, that's great, but I'm not really willing to pay you what you want to want to charge me for it because it doesn't solve it the way I want it to be solved. So how do you get around that? You make sure you do all of these steps really thoroughly, really well. And what's that? It's design thinking. Last point in the, in the education before we get to some, some fun examples. Past success is not a guarantee of future success. It can equally lead to future failure. The market's changing, it's pivoting, the speed of change is increasing, and all the new products and services and technologies out there may or may not get you there. What's going to future-proof you? It's speed and being able to be agile and adaptable. And that's what design thinking is all about. So when you see framing the problem, ideating the pro concept and, and iterating, that's enabling the speed, that's enabling the adaptability that you need to succeed and, and get that adoption faster and faster. So some examples of each of the steps. So that first step, as I said, was empathize. So there's different tools that are available to you and, and by no means are the two that I'm gonna share are it. You can totally Google search um, several different tools and get a lot more out there. So the first one's called customer journey mapping. Fancy name for basically walking through the entire process someone goes through from beginning to end when they consider your product from the it's in my head to I'm a loyal customer and would never choose anyone else. So the first example we're gonna give is donuts. So national donut chain wanted to sell their donuts in grocery. Key competitor, very successful doing it, but when they piloted it, it failed. Had no clue, why, why did ours fail when our competitors sell so many donuts in, in grocery stores? So they applied journey mapping, and what they uncovered is it wasn't actually the eating of the donut that was the key to their customer, it was selecting the donut. 
people expected to go in and select from this wide variety of donuts. And that experience, that emotional high, couldn't be replicated inside a grocery store. So this is an interesting example, not that they created a solution that worked for grocery. They learned that it didn't work, but they could refocus their efforts in their own establishment, their own stores and sites, and promote them in a way that emphasized the selection versus the experience of eating the donut. Another tool is called Jobs to be Done. This is also something you'll see in the press a lot. Essentially what this means is you're hiring a product or service to do a job for you. So if you think of this in terms of pallets, you're not hiring a pallet because it's a 48 by 40 wood pallet and it's painted blue. That's not what people hire Chep for. They hire our pallet to carry their goods from one point to another point safely and efficiently and at as low a cost as possible. And there's other benefits to go along with that, but at its core, that's what they're hiring it to do. That's the job of how it's doing. So the example we're gonna talk here, keeping in the sugar theme, is about milkshakes. And so a fast food restaurant actually sold a lot of milkshakes in the morning, and their revenues in the morning and the afternoon were about the same. And they couldn't figure out why. Afternoon, they expected to be much, much bigger. So they applied a jobs to be done approach to figure out what, what was going on. The afternoon was not too surprising. It was a reward. Had a good day at school, got my kids a milkshake. Had a great soccer practice, got a milkshake. It was a reward, it was a treat. But it was totally different from the morning. What they found in the morning was, it was the adults entertaining themselves on the commute to work. It was a companion because their commute was too long, it was boring, they bumpered bumper traffic, and the, what it performed was not a treat, it was that distraction. So you might say, well, what does that get them? Well, if you're promoting milkshakes in the morning, you're going to promote it and advertise it in a way that's much different than give yourself a treat. It's gonna focus on that distracting, nice, enjoyable thing that, that keeps your, your commute uh, less uh, worrisome. So it's not all about products, it could be about refining and optimizing your advertising or your marketing. And every, power, every PowerPoint presentation has to have an eye chart, which is this. Uh, as I mentioned, you can go on and Google search customer journey maps. This is kind of the detail that you, you would want to get. And really the story is you're covering it from beginning to end. Again, I'm thinking about a donut to I've bought your donut and I love your donuts and I'll never buy another donut from anyone else. The other key thing here is looking at that line, line chart in the middle. What this tool allows you to do is really define when people are frustrated with your product or service. So here in the use of it was the low point. So when are you going to apply design thinking? When are you going to what are you going to try and focus on? You're going to focus on that low point first. You're going to say, that's what I'm going to fix. And once that's fixed, then you move on to another. This one, you don't have as many low points. If you had another dip, that would be your second. So methodically, thoughtfully, you take care of all the, the pain points that your customers have proven through the process. And in the end, you get more loyal customers at the end. Uh, 
as I mentioned, the second step after you empathize and, and figure out what that pain point is with your customer, you're framing the problem, you're defining it. So a good example here is airports. When you think about baggage claim, um, and I'll, I'll kind of frame this in a, an actual example. A bag takes 10 minutes to get from the plane to baggage claim, but the traveler only takes one minute to walk that distance. So as a result, they're waiting at baggage claim, watching the carousel go around and around and around, wondering if their bag will ever come off for nine minutes. Lots of frustration, lots of complaints. The process is too slow. Baggage, baggage claim is too slow. So what do you do? You speed up the process, you add automation, you add baggage handlers, you throw money at it. That may be the solution, but it might not be. So there was an airport in Texas that looked at this slightly different. And their question was, how do we reduce customer wait time at baggage claim? Sounds very similar, but it's not the same thing. So instead of investing lots of money and people, what do you think they did? They moved the arrival gates further away. Which sounds horrible. Now you made all your travelers walk a lot further. But the amazing thing was the walk wasn't the problem. The walk wasn't painful to people. They're talking to their, their colleagues, they're talking to their family, they're looking at the stores and the restaurants they're passing. They're not thinking about how slow it is or how far they're walking. The pain point was waiting without anything to do, watching the carousel go around and around, wondering if your bag was coming off. So by putting the arrival gates further away, not spending lots of money, it took them longer to walk there, it shortened their time at baggage claim, and the frustration and pain point went away. So this example is really good. It's not all about looking at the concrete defined problem. It's suit that the process is too slow. Automation will fix it. It could be a completely different spin that gets you the same answer at a lower cost and a lower investment. Another example of this and reframing it, um, when high rises started going up, skyscrapers started being built, um, elevators became a necessity. You got 50 floors, you're not going to take 50 floors on the stairs every single day. I guess if you're a super athlete, probably you would, but most people wouldn't. Well, what happened when, when that started? Elevators too slow. Elevators too slow. Waiting too long. So all the elevator companies approached this the same way. and. And they, it's almost like confirmation bias. Elevators are too slow. We need to uh, address it with technology. Make it faster, put new motors in, change the number of lifts, all spending lots and lots of money. But there was an engineer who, who really came up with a great idea. He added two words to the problem. It wasn't that the elevator was too slow. It was people thought the elevator was too slow. The problem was people think it's too slow, not the elevator's too slow. Because what was happening was not that the time was too, too long, it was they had nothing to do as the elevator was going up other than worry if it was gonna fall because of new technology, how high they were up, they were afraid of heights. 
So what did they do? They didn't invest in new motors to make it faster. They distracted the people in the elevator by doing what? The picture kind of shows it. They added mirrors. Think about it. What distracts you better than looking at yourself in the mirror? You're not worried about the passage of time. You're entertaining yourself. And this has evolved, obviously, since the mirror. Now you've got video screens. You've got signage. You've got other things to distract your mind. But again, it wasn't the pain wasn't that the elevator actually took too long. Is that it was perceived as wasted time. It wasn't productive time. They weren't doing anything on the trip up. So the next step is iterating solutions. And there's two approaches to this. Traditionally, you spend money, you drive value, and you assume risk. And at the top of this little pyramid, this triangle, that's your solution. Downside here is what if it's wrong? You're not going to know until you get to the very end, and then you start all the way back over, investing all the same money to drive the same value, assuming all the risk. So, iterative approach in design thinking starts there. Much, much different. You iterate to what you might have heard called a minimum viable product, MVP. You get just enough, just far enough up this curve, and then you get that in front of your customer. Does this solve your problem enough? If the answer is yes, maybe that's all that was needed. Probably isn't going to be there. So then what do you do? You keep going, doing the same process over and over and over until you optimize it. Now you'll notice that you've spent the same amount of money, and if you add all of the value lines, it's the same value. But the big difference is you've removed half to 75% of the risk. And how are you doing that? By involving your customer in the process and validating each step with that customer. You've reduced the time to adoption, and you've removed the risk that they're not going to accept your solution in the end. So a couple examples on iterating, um, and this one's, uh, you go down the toothpaste aisle in your grocery store, you see all these different ones. And you can whiten your teeth with abrasives, baking soda, or you can do it with a bleaching agent. Sometimes maybe both are in a toothpaste. So this company, this division of a big company wanted to whiten teeth without doing either one of those. So they put their chemists, scientists, and experts against it, spent time going over and over, how do we do it, how do we do it, how do we do it, hit a wall, couldn't figure it out. So in the end, they had to hit reset. So they asked themselves a different question. Who else makes whites whiter? Happens to be this company had a laundry division. They just never talked to each other. So they went to the laundry division and said, how do you make whites whiter? And the answer they got was, we don't. The laundry guy said, we don't make whites whiter. They all said, what? You're a laundry detergent. You make whites whiter. No, we make whites bluer. Sounds crazy until you think the way your eyes perceive blue as cleaner than white. So think about your laundry detergent. You see it in liquid laundry detergent, it's usually blue. 
it's actually making your whites blue or white to your eye. Your eye sees it as whiter, as cleaner, even though the white really didn't change. The fabric itself didn't change. So this toothpaste team went back and basically developed a toothpaste that does the same thing. Now, it's not that this is the best toothpaste in the world. It's not that it'll be the successful in the world. They got an idea from a completely different area to resolve a problem that they could not solve. So it can come from anywhere. Second example on this is potato chips. So lots of companies out there trying to do low-fat potato chips. How do you shake the fat off of potato chip in production? Think about that for a second. So the company said, we want to we want to remove the fat. So they put all kinds of pilot lines together, ran the potato chips down, shaking the fat off, and at the end they got potato dust. Not a potato chip, they got potato dust. So they couldn't figure out how to do this. Well, the, the answer to this actually came from somebody who worked there, but not from a scientist, not from a manufacturing expert. This was a guy who played the bass guitar. And when he played his bass and cranked up the amp to 11, he noticed he could feel the vibrations in his head. So he took, took uh, his stuff home, made some potato chips, put them on a drying rack, and put a speaker up to it and played around with the, the frequency until he figured out a way to make the fat fall off the potato chips without breaking. And then took that back to work and said, it's sound waves. So they approached it a completely different way. Again, solving a problem in a completely different way with an innovation coming from a completely unrelated, seemingly unrelated space. I'm gonna go through this pretty quick. Everybody knows who these companies are. The key here is they basically built a game, built all the pieces to the game, and then invited everybody to play in their game. Think about Facebook. You're playing Facebook's game when you're on there. You know, it's their it's their walled ecosystem. You buy into it, you post on it, you do whatever it, but it's their system. Netflix. What I see when I log in and, and I'm searching for a movie or a TV show is different than probably what you would see yourself. Why? I've bought into their ecosystem, they've got data, they've built it up, and now they can provide me a service or a solution that I don't have to tell them about. But I've bought into their ecosystem. And the thing here is, again, how did they get there? They spent time and effort iterating. Netflix started basically doing a, a, you know, a, a male version of Blockbuster Video, so you didn't have to go to the store. They pivoted into streaming, and they had a couple hiccups along the way, but they didn't start with streaming. You know, Apple didn't invent the smartphone. They optimized it for things that consumers wanted to do, but didn't know they could do. So a lot of obvious examples here, but it's all driven by that same approach, iterating, iterating, iterating. The first, first Apple iPhone was not a great phone, but you look at the Apple iPhone 11, that's a pretty awesome piece of technology and they would never have gotten there without iterating each cycle. So summarizing up design thinking, going back to what we started at the beginning, you start with empathizing. 
uncover what that pain point really, really is. You define the problem, identify it, specify it, be as specific as possible. You don't want to be in some murky, generic sounding thing, because then it could be a lot of solved, uh, solutions. Ideate with focus. You want to keep in mind it's not a free-for-all, it's not throwing things on a wall and seeing what sticks. It's actually saying these are the ideas that solve this problem that's been defined. Prototype it, you test it and validate it. And by testing it and validating it with your customer, you get that faster adoption, you get that speed that you are looking for to succeed in the future. So that's it. We still have some time for questions. Anyone? All right. Well, thank you very much. If you need any information, uh, my information's up there. My colleague, who also couldn't be here with me today, Mohammed, um, you could also contact him directly for more information about design thinking. Thank you very much.